welcome to Really Specific Stories, Stephen. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for, uh, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I think you know how this starts. Every guest gets the same question to kick off and we'll see where it takes us. Stephen, how did you first get into podcasts? Uh, I got into podcasts through blogging, actually. And, and, you know, the root of those technology stacks aren't all that different. But I was writing about tech just on the side. I had an IT career. This is 11 or 12 years ago now and was writing about mostly Apple, which is the, the area I focus on in my coverage. And I kind of bumped to, on the internet, this guy named Mike Hurley. He had a little tech podcast with a friend of his, and they had me on as a guest. And I had heard some podcasts before then, but really I started podcasting as a guest and then sort of on the regular kind of basis without being a huge podcast listener first. And now I listen to a bunch but in those early days, it was it was all pretty new to a lot of people. Focusing, first of all, on blogging, which you said was your, I suppose, introduction or transition into podcasting. What was it about blogging that really attracted you or what did you get out of the activity? For me, it was it was being able to publish what I wrote on my own without any gatekeepers. And so I, I went to journalism school, worked at the college newspaper as an editor even, and in that process, I learned that, well, there's always someone between like what I write and what goes out. And with blogging and with the internet, you could just write something or take a photo or do whatever and just publish it. And the act of creation and publication, the gap between them was much smaller than anything I'd experienced in school. And I found that really interesting. And so I started blogging really just to kind of get my ideas about Apple and their products and, and other things kind of out into the world. And I mean, this was a long time ago, so before social media was really big. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that like when individual colleges in the United States got Facebook and you were like jealous that your friend at the other university got it, but you didn't. Uh, it was a long time ago. And having a blog, having a domain with my own name on it, I was kind of my own publisher. And I thought that was really empowering. And you've noted that Apple was the main topic of interest for your writing. Mm -hmm. How did that kick off for you? Why was it Apple as the focus? So for me, it really started in high school. I, I joined the high school newspaper staff and they had a bunch of Macs to do the layout and publication of the student newspaper. And it was the first time I'd, I'd really ever used the Mac seriously and definitely the only time I'd ever use the Mac to like get a job done, you know, in elementary school or middle school it was like, oh, we're going to play these games on this like janky old performa, which if anybody remembers, it was a sad, <laughs> a sad line of computers. But it was the first time that I could use a computer to take an idea or a, or a project I worked on or something and make it real and take it from my mind out into the real world. And ultimately, if a bunch of people could read it. You'll notice some similarities between my two answers, probably. The Mac was the tool or the set of tools that let me do that. So even though I studied journalism in school to be a writer, I always had this sort of dual love. I had this, this love of writing and reporting, but also for the computing platform that powered it all. And so when I was you know done with school and writing and kind of starting out my life on the internet, it just made sense to me to continue exploring those interests. And uh, especially in the early days of my blog, there are a lot of posts about like, 
are bloggers journalists like all the you know the the angst we all felt 15 years ago but really that sort of two sides of a coin of okay i have something i want to publish it uh, i want people to read it and enjoy it hopefully and this is the tool chest that i have to like make those things happen and so for me that it was always really hard to separate those two interests i can really relate to what you're saying in terms of the mac fandom is this wonderful collection of tools for your creative work or thinking. I really like that. When you spoke about transitioning to being a podcast guest, meeting Mike, getting that ball rolling that's led to your current creative interests in your career, what do you recall about that shift and how you felt going from being primarily a writer to exploring the sharing of your ideas with the spoken word? It was definitely strange to to go through that process for a couple of reasons. I mean, when you write something, you have the opportunity to pour over it over and over and, and fine-tune it and change it. And if it's on the web, you can keep changing it even after you publish it. I'm sure lots of people have had that experience. They read something they published five years ago and find a typo. It happens to me all the time. It's like, oh, I can just fix it. Whereas in high school and college, if I made an error in the newspaper or like, that's printed in the hands of thousands of people. Everyone knows I misspelled the word conference on the front page. That's a very specific example that is true uh, to my <laughs> shame in college. I still, anytime I have to like type the word conference, I'm very careful. Uh, I've got some anxiety over that. So having that experience of like really making sure that everything was perfect, every pixel, every comma, everything was perfect. Going from that landscape to one where you're just having a conversation with somebody and you're doing it for the most part off the top of your head, that was scary and challenging for me. Because I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like I had the protection of the edit, right? That in print or on the web, I could tune and fine tune and keep messing with it, um, sometime within an inch of its life. But when I'm just talking to somebody over Skype or Zoom or whatever we were using, that's kind of it, right? You can go back and you can restate something or you can script something. But the types of shows that we do and that we like making are very conversational. It's, hey, we're hanging out as friends. We're talking about these things that we're interested in. And I had to learn to be comfortable with those conversations being the end product, right? It wasn't like in blogging where maybe I would have a conversation with a friend and that would like spark an idea for an article and I'd go write it. The conversation is the work. And that was something I just never experienced. And it it took a while to get used to. And do you recall what some of those earliest guest appearances or show experiences were that you had with Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the the first one, if not the first one, was talking about the early iPad. Um, you know, that was in 2010. It was this new product category for Apple. Tablets had not been a success before Apple did it. I mean, Microsoft had tried different things and other people had tried things, but nothing had hit. And so Apple comes as like, they're like I think literally in the keynotes, like it comes out of the sky in a cloud of dust. <laughs> it's like, okay, Apple is serious about this. And that was so it was a new thing and very interesting. And as a kind of Mac first person, you know, it's like, oh, well, what does this mean, right? Endless conversations. So a lot of our early conversations, so I ended up being a guest several times. A lot of those early conversations were about those sort of early iPad days. And it was sort of scary because we maybe we had an outline. Maybe I knew what questions he was going to ask, and I'd like put some bullet points in. But again, like we were learning very quickly that, oh, what we make well together is the conversation itself. You know, the iPad and those sort of 
those sort of still like early iPhone days, you know, 2010, 11, 12, a lot was in flux at Apple as it was when Apple really started growing away from the iPod and, and all those things towards the end of Steve Jobs time there. There was a lot to talk about and a lot to consider. And so it was never a challenge to find something to talk about. It was just kind of figuring out how to talk about it. Now, at this time, you weren't yet running Relay FM. No. You weren't doing podcasting full time. Mm-mm. How are you balancing this new interest with the rest of your life? I mean, I stole a lot of time from a lot of people. <laughs> so, I mean, when Mike and I were getting serious about doing shows together, I had an IT position at a really large nonprofit here in the United States. Actually, the nonprofit's big everywhere, but here in the U.S. And I would record sometimes on my lunch break, or I would, like, book out a conference room. And my boss was cool with it as long as I made up the time. And in that job, it really was, like, as long as things get done, it doesn't have to be between the nine to five. Sometimes it's better if it's not. And so as long as I got done what I needed to get done for the organization, he he gave me a lot of rope (laughs) in terms of letting me borrow time from... Uh, from work to do those things. And I had to do it during the day because Mike is in the UK and I'm in the southern part of the United States. And it's like, we have a six-hour time difference between us. And that meant that if I, you know, went home from work, had dinner, kissed my wife and baby, and then went to the bedroom to record, it'd be 2 or 3 a.m. for him by the time I was ready. And so we had to do it during the day. We really sort of scratched together this like little patch of land on the internet for a couple of our shows with some of our friends. Some of those shows, including the Pen Attic, still exist to this day uh, from those early days. And we just kind of forced it because we wanted to do it. I mean, Mike was working a full-time job. I was working a full-time job. I had two kids at this point. One was like a newborn. And it was a lot, but it was something I was so interested in. I made the time for it. Right. I really believe that if it's something you want to do, you will find the time. And in those early days, it really even wasn't about like, could we make this a job one day? I had dreams of it, right? I was like, well, maybe one day I can write enough and the site can get big enough. I can like, do enough shows and like maybe I can like pay my mortgage. But we weren't really working towards that in reality. We were just still figuring it out and having fun and, uh, and doing it with, you know, a, a tiny slice of the audience we have now. But uh, people were starting to show up, and, and that was exciting. And when you were in this early stage of experimenting, building a community, working out this content and what it would look like over time, how were you meeting people and getting the word out there for those shows? I mean, really, it was the the same that it is now, 10 years later. Jeez. It, it's, it really is about that sort of community building, right? So it's it's talking to listeners on social media. It's answering emails from listeners. I mean, if you email me to this day, I nine times out of 10, I will email you back because I want to have a conversation. Uh, it was about, you know, those connections. And in some ways it was easier then just because it was so much smaller, right? As we've gotten bigger, you kind of got to filter through some stuff. But for us, it was about just being authentic and genuine and reachable to our audience and bringing the audience into the shows with us. I mean, all, almost every show on Relay and a lot of shows in our sort of indie tech space have follow-up or feedback sections or Q&A sections, right? And that's a way to bring the audience into the conversation. And we've we've got newer ways to do that now, but that's always been a through line for us is trying where we can to build a relationship with the people who are listening. And it's it's really, 
it's it's important to us. And I think it's one reason we have found success is that when someone reaches out to us, they hear from us, right? They don't hear from somebody else they've never heard of. We try our best, to, not that we're not that we share everything in our lives. It's not what I mean, but we are honest and open on our shows about what we think and who we are and our backgrounds and all that stuff. You know, we're not really playing characters, if you will. And that means like if we meet somebody at an event or a live show or bump into somebody at the airport, and we have a conversation, like I want it to be like how I sound on the show. I want to be the same person wherever I am. And that was really important to us in those early days. And it's continued to be really, I think, a hallmark of how we work. There's that idea of building a network, not just of social relations, but the network formally that you have now. And what do you think was the turning point or the decision in your mind to go, we're going to make a network. How did that start? Yeah, I think we really have to back up back up one step. Um, so Mike and I and some other people had a handful of shows and kind of loosely operating as a network. You know, it wasn't a business, right? It wasn't a company. It wasn't formalized in any way. We were just kind of hanging out and we shared a website. And then in late 2012, early 2013, we had discussions with a tech podcast out of Texas called 5 by 5 And some of our previously independent shows went to 5 by 5 with Mike Hurley, my partner, kind of being the cornerstone of those shows. And at that point, he and I had had a, a tech show for a little while, and we brought on a third co-host, uh, Federico Vitici, who's the editor-in-chief of MacStories.net. Uh, Federico's covered Apple as long as I have, lives in Rome. Um, he's very handsome and tall and Italian. It's great. <laughs> and that show became the prompt. And for us, that show is why we have, or why we were able to start Relay FM, I should say, because that show... It was just three of us talking about Apple and news and rumors and then also our lives. And that show took off in a way that nothing we had done ever had. It took off really quickly. It got big. For us, it got big. And all of a sudden, we sort of were looking around like, oh, like we have a successful thing on our hands. And it took us a while to work out why it was successful. Sometimes I, I listen to us. I'm like, I still am not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was successful. Um, but we were, again, honest and genuine and funny and like just three friends hanging out, right? We want you to feel like we're all just kind of talking around a table. And that show was really successful. And as that show was growing, we, Mike and I, independently of each other, turns out, were kind of thinking like, what's the next step? Like, are we happy on someone else's network with you know, someone else making the money and someone else kind of calling the shots? Or at some point, do we want something a bit more than that? And again, Mike and I had kind of been thinking that independently of each other. And, you know, the time, you know, he's working at a bank. I'm still doing the IT thing. I've got a couple kids. He, he wasn't married yet. But we sort of had this realization that, you know, maybe we want to take a, a swing at this ourselves. Like, what would it look like if we did what we do on The Prompt and our other shows, uh, but we did them more our way? And I'm not saying anything bad about 5x5 or Dan or anything, but there were things that we wanted to do differently that we felt like, well, if we're calling the shots, we can make those decisions. We started having conversations about it between the two of us, 
and with some close friends, uh, a lot of whom uh, ended up with shows on the network over the years. Really in 2014, really the spring of 2014, the summer of 14 is really when we got really serious about, okay, we want to take our shows from 5x5 onto our own network and we got to build it and brand it and figure all that out. But we think we're ready to to make a step out. And maybe at this point, we were more hopeful that it would lead to full-time jobs. But it was more about, okay, like we've had some success now. And a lot of the success is due to 5x5's popularity back in the day, that the prompt was on a bigger platform to grow. But we felt like we can do what we're doing here, but put our own our own names on the door, if you will. And you said during that description there, which was very comprehensive, thank you, that you're not quite sure still what made the prompt successful. You mentioned, though, that you live and work in different places. Mm-hmm. What role do you think maybe that has in how people relate to you or how the news and rumors are conveyed, that difference in experience? Yeah, I think amongst sort of our flavor of show of like tech commentary, not even just on Apple, but on sort of consumer devices, Connected, which is the show that was the prompt, we rebranded it on Relay because we needed to change the name. Connected is really the only show with that wide of a background, sort of at our size. And so we've got me... American in the South, worked in IT, worked as an as a Apple genius 100 years ago. And so I bring to the table sort of my IT past, sort of the way I think about things. And of course, my life experience. I'm the only parent on the show. And so they, they're not that much younger than me, but they really like to point out how much older I am. And, you know, we've got, we've got Mike, who is in the UK, who is particularly good about looking at tech differences between the, the United States and other countries. Because so many times you read a press release and like, oh, it's launching in the U.S. and the rest of the world in 2024 or whatever. <laughs> and he notices those things and he brings them to the table. Mike is also hilarious. And then we got Federico, who didn't grow up speaking English. He learned English by playing video games. And he brings a totally different point of view to technology because of some life experience he had where he was basically forced to like continue working, had to figure out how to work on an iPad like 10 years ago when it wasn't that easy. And so he has this point of view of like iPad first, you know, which is not very different from me, very different from Mike. And so we do come from these different places. And generally, if we're you know, talking about uh, something in the news or whatever, we usually end up sort of on a spectrum of opinions about it. Usually like Federico and I are on the opposite ends and Mike is somewhere in the middle. I think that's those are sort of the best shows. Where that's, that's where we end up. And it's because we have those varied backgrounds. But at the same time, we're all extremely close and are talking all the time and are very involved in each other's lives offline. And so you also get our friendship and partnership and just our love for each other, I think, comes through on the show, too. And so there's some combination there that just really works. And it's hard even now years and years into it to put my finger on exactly what that is. But I think people resonate with hearing people who genuinely like each other, right? There's so much disagreement in the world. It's like, yeah, I can sit down and like, you know, these guys may argue or they may disagree, but at the end of the day, like it's all entertaining and interesting and hopefully funny. And it's sort of the mix of the tech and the personal that we've landed on somehow. And uh, it seems to resonate. And variety or diversity of backgrounds that you said there, is a key point of the next question I want to ask, because while that's within the show connected, formerly the prompt, as you said, 
you've now got this network of shows. You've got all these other different people mm-hmm. doing different programs or podcasts that you're not officially producing or running. They're on your network. So right. can you tell me a bit about what it was like to kick off bringing people onto the network and the shows that were coming in and how you kind of negotiated having a full spectrum of people being on this new property of yours? Yeah, absolutely. When we first started in 2014, we had a handful of shows and Mike was on all of them. I was on one. He basically had hosts that he worked with and he was on every show. So and that's how it kind of had always been. It always been kind of Mike was sort of the the front man. Like if we were a band, right? He's the front man, right? He's out front. He's singing. People are throwing roses and underwear at him. <laughs> Can't travel with the guy. It happens all the time. Uh, just kidding. But very quickly, we were in a position where we were able to add some more people. And so our friend Jason Snell, who if you're in the the Apple world, that name means, probably means a lot to you. He's the editor-in-chief of Macworld Magazine for like 150 years, really long print history. And he came to us confidentially that he was going out on his own blogging and podcasting. He wanted to do a tech podcast and he wanted to do it with us. At this point, the company had been publishing podcasts for like four weeks. Like we were brand new. Now we had our our few years of history that Jason was aware of, but Relay FM itself as an entity was a baby brand new. And he came to us and said, I want to do a tech show with y'all. It was an amazing thing. I remember I remember Mike calling me, which is very rare. We don't normally call each other and telling me about it. And, you know, we met with Jason and worked it out. And very quickly after that, we were able to add more shows. Uh, another early one is a show called Rocket. Uh, it's hosted by Christina Warren and Simone de Rochefort and Brianna Wu. Christina Warren was like another giant in sort of tech reporting. And we learned very quickly, like, okay, we have people who are experts, right? Like Jason, Christina, all the other people we work with, they're all experts in their own fields. And sometimes they overlap with ours and sometimes they don't. But what we do is we show up and we have these conversational shows. We cover news, rumors, opinion, all of it. That recipe can work with people who aren't me and Mike. And we learned that really early on with some of our other shows. All of our shows are conversational, Uh, All of our shows are relatively casual, right? They're not like this tightly edited, tightly scripted public radio thing. It's more friendly and warm than that. And we learned that that formula, as long as you have an expert and you have somebody who can drive the conversation, and sometimes those are different people, if you can get the right combination of people, then this formula works. And so really it, it wasn't difficult to expand the network beyond our own voices because we we were able to work with such talented people that we knew, like, okay, if we just provide them the infrastructure and sell some ads for them, that they're going to be able to do what they do because they're really good at it already. Uh, especially in those first couple of years when we really added a lot of shows to a letter, you know, those folks, those shows... Uh, we didn't really worry about because we knew that they were professionals and they were going to be good at what they did. And it means that we can have a pretty loose relationship with those shows. You know, I don't have editorial control (laughs) over upgrade or rocket or cortex, you know, anything else. Um, We have some standards and some guiding principles, but really we just want to empower the people we work with to do really good work. Picking up on what you said about ads there for a second, you're making podcasts, doing what you love, 
you know, communicating, as you said, chatting very casually with friends on these shows. Mm -hmm. Ad sales and other elements of that business are pretty much, I think it's fair to say, the antithesis of that. It's a very formal (laughs) exercise. So how have you felt over time balancing the fun with the things that you have to do to maintain the business? Yeah, well, I mean, luckily we work with a lot of advertisers who are good to work with and casual and cool. I think that our Mike and I's philosophy of like trusting good people to do good work, I think that's actually really paid off for us in the advertising space where we have relationships with a lot of companies and have a lot of, you know, a lot of advertisers across a lot of shows and they all have the trust in us that we're going to produce something good and that the numbers we report are accurate and truthful and that they can they can entrust their brand to us and our hosts. Right. And, you know, they provide copy to read and links to make sure you read out. And some of them want you to read it twice and spell it out. There's all that stuff we have to contend with. But really, I think Mike and I's ethos of like, we want to trust people in their work. I feel like that is, has really done well in advertising for us. Uh, we've really only had a handful of mm, situations with advertisers that kind of went sideways. And over the course of eight and a half years, We've got we have sponsors that leave. That always happens. But I don't think we've ever had anybody leave angry. And we have sponsors today, ads that I read this week that I read in 2014 when we started. We have these companies with really long-term investment in our advertising business. And I think that that speaks a lot to the types of shows and type of hosts that, that work on Relay. Perfect. And I'm also interested, this is reaching back into some of the story you told earlier. You mentioned journalism as something that you studied. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned the word independent as well, which is really interesting to me uh, in the sense of being an independent business or an independent writer or blogger or podcaster, as you've said, but then you're also part of a network. So mm-hmm. how do you think about yourself in this role running Relay FM and the network broadly in terms of whether you're journalistic or what does independence mean? How do you hmm. define what you all do? I like the philosophical questions. <laughs> That's good. I mean, in the early days, like 2014-ish, starting the company, independent meant something really specific in the Apple community, mostly. It was like a developer who makes one or two apps on their own. They care about every detail in the app or in the service, right? Sort of the adage of like you paint the back of the cabinet, (laughs) even though no one's going to see it. Mm -hmm. That sort of philosophy really speaks to me and who I am and how I was raised and uh, my dad and his dad, you know, contractors make things with their hands think that way, right? Like no one's going to see this joint in this wall, but I'm going to do it right because it's the right thing to do. And so that's really what independent meant to us in the early days. You know, that sort of ethos of like, we're, we're small, we're just a couple of people. There's no outside money or investment, nothing creepy going on. We just want to make the best thing that we know how to make. And that, that's really how I thought about being independent for a long time. You know, now as a business owner, right, I've got all these people and <laughs> all this stuff. Now I think about independent more of, of a, we can do this on our own, right? That we're not part of a bigger company. You know, we're not just a cog in a wheel. Uh, we don't owe anybody anything. There's no investment, right? All the money to start the business came out of Mike and I's life savings. We don't owe anybody anything. And that's really what independent means to me now is kind of both things. Like do the best job we can do, care about details no one's going to notice, and do it in a way where we don't have to answer to anybody else. And that is uh, very attractive to me <laughs> as, as a human being. And I think to a lot of people who 
are into technology, right? A lot of people who are who are nerdy about the stuff that we're nerdy about, they, I think that a lot of those people have the same philosophy in their work and in their passions. And so I think that resonates with people. So there's a freedom in decision-making and direction for what you want to do. Right. So I'll, I'll give you uh, an example. Early on, we realized that, okay, there will be errors made in bookkeeping. It's inevitable that the wrong ad gets, or old ad copy gets read on the air, or someone messes up an ad and we have to do it again, give them one, it's called a make good. We basically give them an, uh, a free advertisement for free as an apology. Uh, there's going to be things where, oh, I just messed this up. And like, turns out I we owe somebody, we didn't pay them or whatever. In a business, those errors are inevitable, especially when you're starting out. And Mike and I made a decision basically on day one that when that happens, because it will, because we're humans and we're going to make mistakes, that we will always make other people whole before ourselves. And so if, for instance, it's our fault that old copy got read on a show, right? We didn't have it on the website in time for the host to read it. Or we missed the email from the sponsor saying, oh, actually, don't say this phrase, say this other phrase. I mean, that happens all the time. Uh, That if that results in an error that would take money out of a host's pocket, it's going to come out of my pocket. It's going to come out of Mike's pocket. And we make that very clear with everybody who works with us that, you know, our goal here is like let our hosts make as much as they can from their shows and be successful. And a lot of them, it's part of their own independent businesses now, which is incredible to me. I did not think that was going to happen. We always want to be the good guys there. We always want to make sure that we're taking care of our people. And if it's an error uh, in any way that we can resolve by taking the hit ourselves, that's what we're going to do. That's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that because that's a bit of uh, inside baseball. That's what I hear. (laughs) That's okay. And in terms of creative decision-making, being an independent business or set of producers, what are some of the things maybe outside of pure podcast production that you've been able to experiment with or uh, explore doing because you can make those decisions yourselves? Hmm. The freedom we have to, I think, change things is a big one for us, where if something's not working in the business, whether that's something as silly as like, oh, you know, this process for checking invoices stinks, like we need to rework this, to having our own content management system that does exactly what we want it to do because we pay a developer to make it do what we want to do. Yes, it's about what we can put on the shows and how they sound, but it's also all the supporting infrastructure that we get to control. An example we're working through right now is the sort of internal web tool that we use to manage our ad inventory is very old. Someone else wrote it, doesn't really meet our needs anymore. We've kind of shoehorned stuff into it in a way that doesn't really work anymore. And so we are in a, turns out, very long process in creating our own ad inventory system. And that means we get to sit down and be like, what's good about what we use now? What stinks about what we use now? And how do we get from A to B? And it means that our sales uh, manager or our community manager, you know, other people on the team who, who work with us, if they have a feature idea or they say, look, I only do this one thing in the system, but it takes six clicks every time. It's like, well, it's just software. We can make it one click, right? Like <laughs> software is, is infinitely flexible. And so being able to build the tools that we need and do them the way that we want to do them, like there's stuff that my CMS does that would drive other people crazy. They probably drive people on relay crazy, but it's that way because I think it's best for the majority of our shows. And so just having that freedom to 
build what we need, I find really refreshing because in an IT career, sometimes you had that opportunity, but a lot of times you didn't because you were handcuffed by corporate policy or the guy above you didn't like Max. And so he was going to keep his thumb on you or whatever. Being in control means like we can just, we can change the tools that we use and build new ones when necessary. And talking about changes, while you were speaking then, it triggered in my mind as a follower of your work and and the podcasts that your network produces, you introduced membership in more recent years. Yeah. What was the thinking behind membership and how much of a challenge was that to introduce given that it wasn't necessarily there at the beginning? So we launched the initial version of membership way back in December of 2015. And it didn't really do very much. Basically, it was like kind of a karma deal. Like, hey, give us five bucks a month and you get a couple of little things, but nothing. It wasn't ever big. It wasn't ever successful. There were some like hardcore relay fans in there, which I'm extremely thankful for. But it wasn't it wasn't really making an impact on the business. And so you fast forward a few years to early 2020. Everyone knows what happened in early 2020. The ad business just fell off a cliff. We had sponsors pulling out. We had sponsors saying, you know, we're freezing our budgets. That Q3 buy we talked about, we're not doing it. Come back next year. And in the course of a couple of weeks, we're like, oh, gosh, like the wheels are coming off this bus very quickly. And we spent time thinking about what assets does Relay have. And the membership was just right there. It was not big. It was not very enticing for people, but the seed of it was there. And over the course of really about six to eight weeks, we completely overhauled it into into what it is now, where you could support shows directly at a couple different price points. You got a lot more extra stuff for that, a lot of incentives like a Discord server and ad-free episodes, a newsletter. That honestly, that like six to eight week period where we went from, um, are we going to be around in a year? Like, what you know, if this thing lasts forever, uh, what's going to happen to our advertising business? And really kind of making the decision of like, look, we are going to like push our membership as hard as we can to make something that is successful and will work for people. And hopefully that'll be enough, you know, to kind of keep things moving. Really, thankfully, two things happened. One, the advertising market came back really actually pretty quickly. It was a scary quarter or two, but then it recovered because I think people realized like people are at home. There's still lots of things to advertise for, especially in our industry of tech. I mean, tech had a big boom in 20 and 21. The sponsorships came back really full, full steam. But what we had done is we had created this opportunity for listeners and for hosts to interact in new ways through the membership program and having all those those goodies that listeners get. And we've been able now to start to scale that up to a point where we're still mostly an advertising business, but the difference between advertising and membership is getting closer and closer every year. And ideally we'd be at 50-50 in terms of revenue. And that would be that would make us feel much more easy about changes in the economy and those sorts of things. And be able to provide like a new level of content and stuff for for our members. And so it was it was difficult and it was weird because we had never really made paid content before. I mean there were a couple of membership things in the previous system, but nothing great, honestly. And we were suddenly going to go to people and we started with our biggest, most popular shows. I said, look, if you pay us five a month or fifty a year or whatever, you can get this show, it'll be longer and it'll be ad free. And we had never done anything like that. 
You know, we didn't know how our advertisers were going to take to ad-free episodes. Turns out none of them care at all. We've never gotten a single email from any of them complaining about that. Mm. And people resonated with it, and they wanted more from the shows. And they, there was demand for ad-free episodes. And so really, thankfully, it worked out because that's still the single biggest crisis our company's ever faced. It was like, what happens to the advertising business? And really, up to that point, we had never had a year that had really taken a hit like that. Every year was better and better and better. And I think we'd gotten a little bit comfortable in that. And now in hindsight, I'm glad that we took the opportunity to do what we did because I think the business and the community is better off you know, having those options. Keyword community there. Earlier on, you made the point, I think really nicely that you always try to be yourself mm-hmm. on your podcasts. You're with friends chatting about what you love. As you've made that shift in really balancing advertising with direct relationships with your members, Discord servers, I mean, you've been communicating with fans or or listeners for years anyway, Mm -hmm. but what has it been like to have more of a obvious or direct relationship or communication with your members? How does that change things? Uh, First of all, I I really enjoy it. Like the Discord is the first thing I check in the morning and- it's not because it's like, oh, gosh, what do I have to moderate today? Uh, it's, it's I want to see what people are talking about. I think we've been really fortunate in the Relay community that our our Discord server in particular has has really been very successful. We've only had a handful of major moderation issues over the course of, what, two and a half years now. And we've been really blessed with a great moderation team. It's not just me and Mike deciding what happens, right? We have a community manager. We have a team of volunteers. We have some uh, hosts in there as well helping. And... It's really been great to get to know people better and have conversations. And, you know, a lot of times in the Discord, it's just goofing off, right? It's really been fun. There are times it's hard, right? There are times where you do have to step in as a moderator. For the for the better of the community, we have to deal with an individual or two. And that, that always sucks. And I always think about it for, like, days beforehand and afterhand. It's like, oh, did we make the right decision how we handle that, all that stuff? But it's really been just a handful of really bad instances of that. And even then, nothing majorly bad has happened, right? It was like relatively on the scheme of the internet, low-level stuff. And so for the most part, it's been it's been really good. There is sort of inherent issues around, you know, relationships between content creators and audience members on the internet. I mean, that's true for bands and like, I mean, how many people thought like they knew everything about the Beatles, but the Beatles didn't know who they were, Right. I'm not comparing myself to the Beatles. I just want to be really clear about that. (laughs) Not that famous or talented. But you have those sort of one-sided relationships. Discord and other things can help with that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, our listeners know a lot more about us than we know about them. And so as we've done this longer, as I've gotten older, as my kids have gotten older, and as more of them have come along, I've had to make some decisions around things that we share or don't share and how we do them. Like I had to have a conversation with my wife. Like I really think you make your, your Instagram account private, like nothing bad happened, but Mm. as we get bigger, it's like you're just exposed to more people. And so we, we try to be respectful about boundaries that we have as a sort of a concrete example on connected because Federico, Mike and I are really good friends or on Mac power users, a show I host with my friend, David. Sometimes we have to do a check before we start a show. Like, Hey, I know we talked about this, but like, can I bring it up on the show either to make fun of you or to like, I think it'd be an interesting conversation. 
we've just learned to respect that about each other. Like, hey, just because we had a conversation in private doesn't mean that it's fair game for a show. Uh, just because like you texted me a funny link doesn't mean you want me to tell the world that you texted me a funny link. And so as we've just gotten bigger and more mature and older, we've just kind of learned to keep an eye on those things because it can be something where you say something or something happens that you didn't mean and you put somebody in a position they don't want to be in. And I always want to be really respectful of that. That's fantastic. And I like that you've spoken as well about how you've had to make some personal shifts because personal life and business, they're not Mm -hmm. two separate worlds. We can talk about work-life balance, but there's some crossover. When you think about all the stuff that you've mentioned to me in your story here and some of the changes you've made along the way, a lot of those have been business decisions. But Mm -hmm. over the course of your career, entering podcasting as a space from blogging, launching this business, working with Mike, bringing on people, refining what you do and how you talk to audience members. How do you think that you've changed as a person and how has your life shifted? Oh, that's like a counseling question. I think I'm definitely more reserved about what I share about, in particular about details about my family. Uh, listeners of Relay FM will know uh, that my oldest son's a cancer survivor. He was a St. Jude patient. And he's doing great today. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor as an infant, but he's doing really well. He's 14 and he's awesome. Early, and he started, I should say, he started, that journey started about the time I started blogging within the same year. And there were times, a lot of times that I would share really openly about what was going on with him. I mean, a lot of people were thinking about him, praying for us, like supportive. Again, nothing bad ever happened, but we shared a lot. And partially because it's like, that's how our friends and family keep up with us. Right. Like, and I'm not necessarily talking about on podcasts, but sort of more in social media, but as the podcast got bigger and as my social media following or my wife's or Mike's or any, anybody else became okay. The, the percentage of people that were your friends and family is now very small. And the rest of the pie chart is people who listen to you or read you. I became aware that I'm sharing these things with people who don't know us. And is that, somehow invading the privacy of my family, of my son. I don't want him to ever be in a situation where he sees that, okay, I I document all this stuff in public. And and now as an adult, he really wishes it wasn't out there. And that's been really hard to balance because Relay FM is actually like a fundraising partner of St. Jude now out of my relationship with the hospital because of my son. But even in the years we've done that, that's become less about him and our story and more about the St. Jude sort of global story. And so to me, that's the biggest example of something that not only have I changed my practice, but I've actually really changed my thought about it. Like going to my wife and saying, look, I think it's awesome that you put pictures of our kids on here for our friends and family to see, but like listeners are finding you. And I think for the, for all of our best interests, it's best if that's private or you stop doing those things. And she didn't want to do that. And so she, she went private. And having those conversations, man, it's it's tough and it's like awkward because you just sound like a jerk, right? It's like, oh, hey, I'm a big deal. Please do this or that. And it's it's hard not to sound that way. But uh, for me, it was was really out of that concern of like a future conversation with family or kids or whatever. Like, well, why was this shared to all these people? And so for me, it's really been as my kids get older and now I've got they're not, you know, five, three, and one anymore. <laughs> They're all much older than that. Our oldest is 14. Having kids grow up in this, like, everything is online, everything is social media world, 
uh, I'm glad that I have not put them sort of front and center in any way. And I mean, to the point where like, I don't even use really their names online anymore. Again, nothing bad happened. Like not saying any of that, but it just felt like that was the best call for me and my family. And so that's definitely something that's changed quite a bit. And look, thank you for sharing that personal detail. I know you've done it on podcasts before, but yeah. it's a big deal. And there is that balancing act of what you share and what you don't. Yeah. And look, I've asked you how you define the network, define the business. I've asked you how you think you've changed and what it means to be independent and a journalist or not. But now we reach this point where you're a podcaster, you're dealing with the spoken word, you're doing all of these different integrated media things on a platform. You run so many different elements on your own and with others. How do you think about who you are now or how do you define yourself or actually tell people what you do? (laughs) I've told people all sorts of things over the years. You know, when we started telling somebody you were a podcaster or you owned a podcast network, they'd be like, what? What, what are those words? Like, that's not a word I've heard before. Mm. Now, in 2022, everyone's heard of a podcast. Even if they don't listen, everyone's heard of them. And especially over the pandemic, the idea that people could make a living just doing stuff on the internet has become mainstream. For me, it's always felt mainstream because I've done it for so long. But a lot of people took the opportunity to make content businesses, right? Look at the explosion of TikTok and Instagram stories and YouTube shorts. Like all those people are making content all the time and a lot of them making money from it. And as that idea has become more accepted and normalized, it's become easier to tell people, oh, well, I actually own a a podcast production company is normally what I say. And people are like, what's that? And my, being in the South, my example is like, well, think about like ESPN, which is like this big conglomerate of sports networks and- You can watch almost any sport in the United States on ESPN, any meaningful talk show or commentary show or something about sports is an ESPN property. That's kind of how we work, right? Like that we have a bunch of shows that are kind of loosely related, some closer than others, all under the relay branding, but they all have their own personalities and their own talent and all those things. But we're all sort of around the world of, you know, consumer technology and creativity and then people are like, oh, okay. And then they just, you know, never talk to me again. But um, <laughs> it has definitely become easier. And the the way that I view my role at Relay now is really different than it was in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, because we were both working full time and then Mike quit his job and then eventually I quit mine, it was much more about like the building of the company, right? Like, okay, we need a procedure for this. We need a tool for that. And... We need to like figure out how to make this all this all the mechanics work. And now that all the mechanics work and have worked well for a long time, really I view myself as kind of two sides of a coin. It's helping our hosts do what they do better. And so sometimes it is a feature in the content management system, or sometimes it's thinking a show that wants to do more with membership, thinking about what that would look like. Okay, like this is what you do every week or every other week. What could you add to that to make a membership offering? And just trying to make the people we work with, helping them what they do become more successful. So the other side of the coin is with the community. It's being accessible and visible to the community to help people who have questions. So if a member has a question, they email our sort of generic email. It comes to me. I answer them all. 
once a week I get an email from somebody like, I can't believe you answered. It's like, well, who else is here? Like, that's how I think about it. Like, <laughs> but really helping the membership become more successful and making the community of Relay FM what we want it to be. And I have a lot of help with that. Kathy Campbell, our membership. So she's sort of like the membership coordinator on the inside, but she's the community manager on the outside of the company. She is critical in that and does honestly way better jobs than I do in these, in these arenas. And we have our moderation team and stuff, but I kind of view my, my position as like trying to make this community what we want it to be, make people feel welcome and not judged and have different points of view and figuring out how to make all that work together. Uh, that's really where my focus is now. Uh, we've really, as we've grown, I'm out of the advertising business. It's Mike and our VP of sales and they do all of that. And the the membership is sort of my half. And so I want to continue to nurture that as it grows. And so if you look at my time tracking, when I'm not actually doing a show that I'm on, most of my admin time now is in that membership space or helping our hosts understand our membership stuff better. So maybe they can jump on board with it and make their show you know, more successful for them and their families talking about building on success and nurturing the brand or the community. I'm interested by that word that you said earlier about you kind of thought that podcasting or at least the online activities you were doing were mainstream in a sense, or they've become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. Apple is a brand that, you know, you tend to focus on or that you do focus on is a very big brand, but not everyone's really necessarily talking about it or running a business the way that you do. So how do you think about your section of the internet and Hmm. where would you like to see it go? Uh, I think it's a great section of the internet. Like the Apple community is a fantastic group of people. I mean, we do our St. Jude fundraiser every year and they donate hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it's amazing. I love our community, but as Apple gets bigger and in a way like more corporate and that shift's already happened, that shift happened 10 years ago, but Apple's different than it was when we started. Their products are really different. Where I try to root my coverage and the the way that I think and the way I analyze Apple is through that original idea of they make a bunch of different tools for people to do their best work, right? Whether that's in academia or it's creativity or they're a lawyer, whatever it is, if they've chosen a Mac, an iPhone, or an iPad to do their work, then that's a very interesting special relationship between a craftsman and their tools, right? Going back to sort of my family's history of of woodworking and all that stuff like okay i have this one tool it only does one thing but dang it's the best tool for that one job and i may only use it once a year but it's a lifesaver and so that's where i try to root my sort of philosophy about tech is that at the end of the day like the the gadgets are fun and the you know it's it's fun having new tech but what i try to come back to is how is this useful to people getting their stuff done whatever that is and so that's how I got into this mess, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And that's where I see it continuing to go is like exploring these tools and trying to make sense of them for people who aren't as knowledgeable or plugged in as we are. I think you've come beautifully full circle with you know, your characterization <laughs> of the philosophy there. So that's that's wonderful. It works beautifully for me as, uh, as the interviewer here, but it's not up to me when this finishes. Is there anything... <laughs> that I haven't asked you about hmm. regarding your personal story, your experiences, or broadly about podcasting and what you do uh, that you'd like to mention to people listening? 
I mean, I think, I think the only thing I would add is anyone out there looking to explore this medium or maybe it's, you know, videos on YouTube or whatever comes next. Don't be intimidated by the medium or people who are doing it professionally and think that you can't enter in. If I thought that 15 years ago, we wouldn't be talking, right? I'd have an IT career fixing Dell laptops somewhere and that would be sad. <laughs> but the internet is big enough and the tools have become democratized enough where you can run a very successful business from the iPhone in your pocket. You totally can. Tons of YouTube stuff from people who you names people would recognize in the space shoot on iPhones, and it's fantastic. You don't have to worry about the first thing you make being perfect. Just start somewhere. You go back and listen to early stuff, it's bad. It's real bad, man. Like it, We've grown a lot. That's how everybody is. So don't be intimidated if you're thinking about starting a project or just putting something out there because someone else who's been doing it a long time does it really well with expensive gear. Like we all started at nothing, at zero. We all uploaded for the first time. And if that's what you want to do, go do it. I think everyone's better for making something and putting it into the world. I think that's wonderful advice and uh, certainly something that I would echo. I mean, you've got to try sitting down, speaking to a microphone and meeting people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and whatever your thing is, you know, I mean, the world of YouTube wasn't what it was when we started, especially 15 years ago. And now we have all these different things on the internet, different platforms you can create on. And who knows what's next? If it's AR or VR or something totally different, whatever, whatever is out there, there will always be people trying to, to figure out how to make good content on it. And if it, if it piques your interest, if it's that idea you can't get out of your head, go find a way to do it. Fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing your story and for that advice. Uh, are you happy to conclude the interview at this point? Sounds good. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining Really Specific Stories, Stephen. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the episode. Of course, you can find many of the topics uh, that were mentioned in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.